Hello, I'm Emile Bellet, founder of Vestpod and author of You're Not Broke, You're Pre-Rich, and you're listening to The Wallet. Every week, we give you the best tips, guidance, and a good dose of inspiration and motivation to manage your money better. How do you make your first 100K? How to get started with your idea? How to make an impact in your first 100 days? Can you run an ethical business and still make money? My guest today is Nafisa Bakar. She's the CEO and co-founder of award-winning media platform Amalia which seeks to amplify the voices of Muslim women. She just published her book, How to Make Money, an honest guide to going from an idea to a six-figure business. With no network, no capital, and no previous experience, Nafisa built her business from scratch and has helped hundreds of founders do the same. In this episode, she shares her honest tips from getting better at sales, understanding how to build a network, how to be hyper-efficient, and how to turn your side hustle into a business. Want to give your money an opportunity to grow this year? Wealthify makes investing simple by choosing and managing your investments for you. And if you open a Wealthify plan and invest at least £50 by 30th of June 2023, they'll give you an extra £50. Terms and conditions apply. New customers only. The offer is capped at the first 500 customers. Find out more and claim the offer at wealthify.com slash the wallet. With investing, your capital is at risk and you could get back less than you put in. Wealthify is regulated and authorized by the Financial Conduct Authority. Remember that we are not certified financial advisors. Information shared in this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. Today, I wanted to talk a little bit about your journey, about your book, How to Make Money, where you have a lot of tips for um, people who start their, on their entrepreneurship journey, a lot of tips. We're going to focus also on imposter syndrome because I think that's so important. Uh, but before we start, can you tell me a little bit more um, about your work? You're passionate about amplifying women's voices, especially muzzling women. Um, so if you can tell me a little bit about the journey. Yeah, sure. So Amalia started over seven years ago now. And I started pretty much out of university where I studied sciences as undergrad. And it was very much one of those things where I thought something needs to exist for Muslim women. There needs to be a space, an online space. Um, and I always say that I was naive enough to think I could make it work with no network, no knowledge, capital, no investment. Um, and so I set out with my co-founder, who's my sister, to build a space for Muslim women that would become a media company, essentially. And even then, we didn't really have a background in media marketing. And then it was a case of, OK, so we've built this thing that Muslim women seem to love. It was articles, events, podcasts, social media. Um, and then that's where we started understanding the world of advertising and marketing. Our first client was eBay. They came to us and they were like, hey, like you've got this audience. We'd love to talk to you about this audience. What can we do? So we started consulting companies in the first instance. And then now our bread and butter is very much a brand will come to us like, for example, Dove or Lloyds Bank or Spotify and say, we want to run a marketing campaign to your audience. And that's where we come up with the creative. We produce the campaign. We put it across our socials. Each month, we reach 7.2 million organically across um, our channels. And so essentially, 
uh, brands come to us to either get consultation or to get marketing campaigns. That's amazing. I, I mean, I think we had uh, with Vespa, I had a little bit of a similar journey, even if we don't do the same thing. But I think we've, we've started, uh, you know, the same way, building our audiences uh, about also six, mm. seven years ago um, and going through the, the, you know, the community building, I guess, building um, audience on different platforms, newsletter, and now, now working with brands. I think it's it's fascinating. Um, maybe from your own experience or how, I mean, you, you talk about that in the book, but can you tell me a little bit more about the first 100 days in business when you have this idea, um, how do you actually get started? Yeah, so first 100 days is this chapter in the book. And essentially, the idea is that whether you have a solution to a potential problem, a business idea, or you're just, you know, you, you there's a certain group of people you want to create something for. Um, the idea is that thinking about in the first 100 days, what can you do that is the most efficient use of your time to figure out if you're onto something, essentially. And if you think about it as a series of experiments, so instead of going from idea to launch, thinking about it as a series of milestones. So essentially, you've got an idea or you've got a problem that you know you want to solve. And your first step is you're essentially coming up with a hypothesis. So, for example, in your case, you were saying, I think there's a space for a podcast that speaks about money with a very specific uh, lens around women. Um, or in our case, it was we think there's something that can be created for Muslim women. And we literally started an Instagram page. We started an Instagram page. We started posting on there about Muslim women, about actually fashion looks for Muslim women. We started DMing people and we started getting into conversation saying, hey, this is what we think we 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 are thinking of building. What do you think? We were truly really trying to get inside the minds of the potential people that we were going to engage with. And then what we did is we set up a one page website where you could basically shop the fashion looks. So whatever you saw on the Instagram, you could then click through to whichever, you know, retailer it was. And so we could track the links, we could track the users. We went from like zero to 10,000 page views in like a couple of weeks and just kept growing. We could see we were making money because people were actually purchasing the products. So we we're like, OK, there's something here. We're onto something. It's not great. It was literally just a one page website. It had nothing else. I coded it myself. And so from there, we just kept on building. We were like, okay, we should probably have categories. Okay, we should probably have a blog. And it was when we had the blog, we then realized people are really interested in the blog and the blog has a lot of potential. And that's where we actually flipped into a media company. And we thought there's a potential here across podcasts, articles. And then that's where we went on the journey with brands. But what you're trying to do is put out the smallest test that you can. So in the book, um, I talked to the co-founder of Afrocentrics and they're now a really well-known hair care brand for Afro and curly hair. They're stocked in boots. They're stocked around the nation. And there I said to Rachel, what did you do in the first 100 days? And she said, I ordered beakers and pipettes and started formulating the product and thinking about, okay, what does this look like as a product? She bought some bottles. She put the label on with some sellotape. She booked a stall at a market and she was like, right, let's see if we can sell this, right? And again, the idea is that it's not going to be perfect. You'll probably be a bit embarrassed of it. It'll probably be a bit cringe, but you just want to start. You just want to see, can I get someone to make some sort of transaction? Can I get someone to show interest? And when you look at 
a lot of the big companies that we know today, like Dropbox, they started with a 30-second video demoing the idea of what Dropbox was. And then they had thousands of people sign up to an early um, sort of like, I want to test it out. So you're really just trying to see, am I onto something? And what's the quickest way to test that? Yeah, I love that. And really understanding the, the problems from, from your community instead of, I think we often say, instead of focusing on the solutions, you really, you know, deep dive on, on the problem and try to, to find a way to help more people. And, and I agree with you. I mean, my, my first podcast, I mean, everything, like all the first newsletters, articles were, you know, so crafty. Um, and still, still sometimes, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, you keep learning. Um, and that's so, that's so interesting. And then, once you have your first, you know, 100 days, you're, you're sort of, I mean, and, and it can take much longer than that to, um, to validate an idea. And each time you launch a project, you're going through the same process. Um, what are maybe the, the biggest mistakes or wins you made when it comes to earning, when it comes to, uh, to making money with your business? I think a big win is setting a money goal. Mm -hmm. And I say that because, you know, we'd been running Amalia for a couple of years People seemed to love what we were doing, but we still hadn't quite found our business model. We had been making money and like consulting here and doing a bit here and doing a bit there, but it still felt quite hard. And it still felt um, like, you know, where's our next bit of money going to come from? And then so what we did in 2019, I basically said, we're going to set a money goal of 100K. We just have to make 100K. And what happens is it gives you a focus. And what happens is you realize that actually you, sometimes you don't even have to learn anything yeah. new. You just have to double down on what was working. So what was working for us at the time was cold emails. What was working for us is going out, meeting clients, really listening to what it is that they spend money on and understanding if that's a service you can offer. So this was before we understood the world of advertising, the world of marketing, how brands even work on partnerships. And that's where we started realizing, okay, we now need to learn how to package this service, right? And then what ended up happening is we literally made that 100K in one partnership in that year, but it set the foundation and it gave us a focus to start saying no to anything that wasn't aligned to making that money. And so I think sometimes especially when you're starting a community or especially when you're starting something from a place of passion rather than I'm starting a business, you can kind of think about money as a, you know, people will think about it as like, oh, the money will come, just do what you love and the money will follow. But I think there's another pathway of being a bit more intentional about going out to find the money and bringing the money in. So I would definitely say a win was setting a money goal because it just really focuses you and you just week to week, you look at your week and you think, are the things that I'm spending my time on trying to reach that goal. Um, the second thing in terms of a win, I would say setting your pricing at the higher end and then discounting if you need to, because you can always go down, but it's harder to go up. And what happens is in the early days, you might be a team of one, two, or like you're a small team. There's not a lot of overheads to account for. You're working all the time. You might not even really like cost your time into what you're creating. But then as you scale and as you get more team members, everyone's time needs to be budgeted for, right? And so I think the best thing to do, and sometimes people will be like, you know, they're just going to do something for free because it helps them get experience or it just helps them get the product out. But even in that case, think about having like a freemium model, for example, and just charge something because I think then you see 
examples like say Twitter, right? Twitter is an incredible example of people love the product, but may not be willing to pay for it in a way that generates them enough money, right? And Twitter's always had this existential crisis of how we're going to make money. And, you know, recently we saw the whole, you can now buy a blue tick and we see how that then impacts the integrity of the blue tick, right? And like that then impacts the brand value of it, right? So I think it's always better to charge something and set your pricing high. So like even with clients, we know that often we are charging higher than other partnerships they're going to. But then we're like, we are a premium brand. We are one of the only in the one of the we're we're one of the largest Muslim women publishers in the UK, if not in Europe. And so we're able to then validate why we are at a higher price than say another media that they're trying to buy. Um, so I'd always say, in terms of your pricing, think about long term. What are the other costs that you're going to have to factor in? I think another win is in the early days. I call it the cowboy 100k. Where in this 100K, so there's like 200Ks, you've got the cowboy 100K and then you've got the real 100K. The cowboy 100K is where you are just trying everything and anything. You don't care if you can repeat it. You don't care where it's coming from. You have no idea if it's you're going to make that money again. You're just like a cowboy going out into the market and being like, how do we hit that 100K number? And I think that sometimes is a fundamental learning experience to then refine down into a business model where you have a repeatable 100K, right? And I very much see that in a lot of companies where you're just literally brainstorming and you're saying, what are all the different ways that we can make money? Let's try and make it. And anything goes, right? Anything goes. If it's a subscription, why don't we play with the subscription? If it's a D2C thing, why don't we try and play with various products? If it's consulting, whatever it is. Um, And I think that process just really teaches you a lot it helps you refine what services or products you could be offering out into the market. It teaches you about pricing. It teaches you what's the ceiling of what we can charge on things. Um, something I used to do with clients early on is every new client we spoke to, I put the price up by a couple hundred pounds because I just wanted to understand what's the ceiling, like what's the highest then people can can pay in this like digital marketing content space. And then that higher end is where we stuck. And like I said, every now and then, like for a charity partner, for example, we might discount it and bring it down. But that is our base level cost. So I think just trying as much as you can in terms of trying to bring money into a company, because ultimately a business is make or break dependent on how much money it can bring in and whether it's sustainable. I think it's super interesting what what you're talking about this like first, you know, 100K just, you know, win them any you know anyway everything <laughs> any, any reason and, and and definitely I, w- I went through this um to actually looking for something that's more sustainable more streamlined uh, but that takes a lot of maybe simplifying the business stop selling yeah. your or exchanging your time for money so doing less of maybe yeah. you know for me that was for example you know the speaking and stuff that I still do because you reach an, uh, like a bigger audience but how did you transition um, in the business from these like early stages to finding your your business model and I'm sure it it, it still changes uh, you know along the way yeah I think the biggest change for us was really defining who is the person in a company that pays for the service that we're trying to offer. And so often I would be going to meetings 
And I would think it's a great meeting. It's like with the head of marketing, we've had a great conversation. They're like, wow, what you've built is so incredible. I love it. I love it. And you leave the meeting and you're like, oh my God, like, guys, I think we're going to be doing work with them. It's so good. It's done. Yeah, like, wow, wow. Look at us. Look at who we're speaking yeah. to. And then they just go cold, right? And you're like, oh my God, what happened? Like, was that not real? Was it, did I feel something in that meeting? It's like dating, right? You're like, was I into them and they're not into me? <laughs> and then it's, it's really understanding where does the money sit? Where does the decision making sit? So something we realized is when working with brands, brands generally have an agency and the agency is the organization they're essentially the middleman mm-hmm. between the brand mm-hmm. and you and they're the ones that hold the purse strings they're the ones that are saying oh this year this brand is going to spend this much and this is how much media they're buying and so when I started changing like I was just constantly thinking who should we speak to who should we speak to spoke to someone at an agency And then I started understanding how the infrastructure of this industry works. Where does the money come from? And then that's where I thought, okay, this person, there must be another one of them at another agency. And so we just literally would cold email loads of agencies and say, hey, we're Amalia. This is what we do. We'd love to know if you had had any briefs, any partnership opportunities. We'd love to know what clients you're working with. So the difference was having the same conversation, but with the right person and what you will find with companies who have repeatability, they are very, very clear on who their customer is in terms of whether that's for us, it's a B2B business. They're very clear, even in terms of, you know, if the employee size is under 100, they won't have a budget yeah. for us. If the role is within the difference between someone who is in PR partnerships versus branded content, it's a difference in budget. So just being very, very clear on who is the specific character that has money to pay for the service or product that you want to buy? And the same with B2C, right? Like, say if you're selling a certain product, you know, like a cookware brand, you very specifically know, is this person got kids? Is this person, where do they live? What sort of lifestyle do they have? What sort of earning potential do they have? All those sorts of things. And you can really define them. So really, really drilling down on who is going to be paying me this money. Tell me your mistakes now. <laughs> um, so my first one is talking to the wrong people in a company. Um, and I think that's a big mistake people make. Um, and so you might be having a great meeting, but it's not necessarily a sales meeting, right? And this also translates into marketing. So like, especially with TikTok and virality, you might be going viral a lot in terms of your content, but it's not necessarily reaching the people that are going to buy your product, right? So I think that's always really drilling down in who is it that you're talking to. There's a really, really great um, pyramid that I reference in the book. It starts from the top, so the pointiest end, and then it goes to the broadest. And it says 3% are ready to purchase now, 7% are open to buying but not looking, 30% are not thinking about it, so they're like kind of indifferent, another 30% think they aren't interested, and then 30% know they aren't interested. So in terms of, you know, the mistake being talking to the wrong people, really understanding where does this person sit within the pyramid? Like, for example, They might think they aren't interested, but then you might hear them articulate a problem or talk about a project and you're like, oh, actually, we could work with you on that, right? Or there might be people who say, no, they aren't interested, but you're really trying to like force a sell and try and make it happen. So just being really clear where to place people and then how you basically pitch and talk to them. Um, The second thing 
that I think is a big mistake that some companies make is not understanding whether they're a startup or a business. And it might sound like just definitions, but I think the key thing is if you're a startup, you are very much trying to discover how you're going to make money and you're trying to discover a business model. Whereas if you're a business, there is a clear cut business model and your job is to execute on it. So for example, say you want to open a hairdresser, right? You know that the business model is people come in, they get the haircut, they pay for the haircut and they go out. And then what you're trying to do is make sure the pricing is right, make sure you're reaching enough people for the haircut, making sure the customer service is good so they come back. What ends up happening with some companies is they stay in that startup phase for too long when actually there's a very clear business model that they should be executing. And so what that means is they basically kill a lot of time, money and resources not making money, which then means that they're more likely to die as a company. And then the third one is people not looking after their runway. So in terms of like your spend, and I think sometimes people will spend money on the things that make them feel like there might be a company. So like, oh, we're going to get an office and we're going to get fancy business cards and we're going to do this and we're going to do that and we're going to get a designer. And, you know, they're thinking bigger than where they are in terms of their revenue and their costs and their income. And so that's what, for me, I'm like very pro the lean approach, experiment, try something out, and then cost should follow your income. Obviously, if you're well backed financially or you have a huge financial safety net, you can do whatever you want and you can experiment. But I think the average person starting out is usually resource strapped, is usually time strapped, usually money strapped. So really being prudent with your money, because when you think about a business, you're basically up against the time. Up, You're basically up against time to try and prove that it's going to work and to try and make money from it. Right. So that it carries on as a sustainable venture. And so in the early days, you really want to hold on to money and only invest it where you know there's there's going to be a return or you know there's going to be something you know coming back. So for example, say you're an events company and you're doing really well, every weekend you're doing events, it's still a side hustle thing. Maybe you're doing like, I don't know, baby shower dessert tables, right? And you're doing well, you're getting good bookings, but you're like at max capacity. So in that example, if you brought on another person in the team, you know that you can then start taking more bookings to then cover their time, right? And so your cost is following the income versus if you were starting that baby shower dessert table company today and then saying, okay, I need a designer, I need an events logistics person, I need a customer service booking manager and really building it out before you need it. I love your last tips about, you know, cash and cash flow. And I think that's going to be so important even for for businesses who already you know are scaling up already have traction because i mean it's either you're bootstrapping your business or you're just using not necessarily your own money but the money you make from the business but if you haven't if you're if you've raised money um you know given the conditions out there and and, and you know Hold on, hold to, on it. to it, hold on <laughs> to it, um, you know, count, <laughs> count your penny. Cash is really king and, and that can kill you, you know, receiving a, a VAT, you know, the, the first like VAT bill I received, you know, corporate tax. Oh, <sighs> this is, you know, <laughs> this is really a, a roller coaster. And that's, these are the things that, that can keep you up at night. 
I think following on this on this question, you talk a lot about selling, obviously, uh, mostly like B2B, but you have like a quick cheat sheet for me, uh, you know, best techniques you've used. <laughs> for sure. Um, so I have a chapter called How to Get Really Good at Sales. And I came from no sales background. When someone said sales, I'd be like, no, that's not something I can do. And I think that's sometimes because we think of sales as like, this guy in a shiny suit trying to sell you door to a door. car and trying to like, yeah, literally, yeah. right? And so like, if, when you think of a salesperson, very rarely do you think of a woman, yeah. right? Because even in films and TV, we, we see that guy in the suit. Um, and then I what I realized is sales is best understood as a conversation, right? And um, there's a saying that it's, it's like sales is almost like acting it is best done when no one realizes that's what's happening right um and so in terms of sales like a typical sales process will be you think you have a solution to this customer's problem right so you reach out to these potential customers or they find you and then you're essentially trying to demonstrate how you can solve the problem for the hopes and the needs that they have and then if that works they'll feel inspired and they'll say right we've got a deal right And so I think um, the first step for us was cold emails, because essentially you just want to reach the people who you can then sell to. So we would literally just find them on LinkedIn, find their email addresses, email them and say, hey, we'd love to have a chat. We'd love to like tell you about our company. And then in terms of actually selling. So I go through like a couple of steps in the book. Um, I'll give you like the super short version. Um, so the first thing is always having a pitch deck ready especially if it's B2B sales, right? And a pitch deck is essentially a presentation where you're talking about your business, you're blowing your own trumpet, you're really articulating how you solve this problem um, and you're showing them with case studies or you're even using them as a case study saying, look, this is what we could do for you. Um, and you're basically packaging it up to inspire them to be like, yeah, do you know what? This is something we should be looking into. And I think the key in sales is really listening to the person's hopes and their needs so sometimes you might find yourself in a sales meeting where the person's constantly interrupting constantly asking a question and being like I just wanted to ask da, da, da. listen to those questions like really listen what is it that they're asking you what is it that they actually need right um because then this helps you tailor what it is you're trying to sell to them specifically and if you're really early in the business journey and you're still figuring out your customer and things like that There's something called white glove treatment where you essentially give a very bespoke experience to a client and the and you're, you're literally just saying yes to what it is that they need. You're almost treating it like a case study to really understand, like, how do you deliver this service? What do you do? So in the book, I talked to Rich from Trey and their business is all about automation. And it's quite a technically complex thing to build in terms of a software. So their first client, they gave them the white glove treatment and they said, what is it that you need in the company? And we will build the solution specifically for you to help us understand. And, and they would charge for that service because you're still making money in the process, but you're, you're trying to really understand how do we nail what this customer needs? Um, and then this, the third thing is really knowing how to articulate your value in the way that the industry is used to. So for example, within our industry, it would be a media plan. So we would say you're 
you're going to get this many deliverables. This is what's going to cost. This is what the reach is. So really understanding in your industry, what's the language people speak? How do they present things? How does that look? What sort of documentation do I need? And these might seem like really small things, but they are just constant signals to the client that this person is experienced. They know what they're talking about. We can trust them. We should work with them. And I think, again, like I've mentioned, talking to the right person, making sure that you're talking to the person who's the decision maker or can introduce you to the decision maker um, and really thinking about um, building a rapport, even if it's not, you know, thinking about that pyramid, it might not be the right time for them. We've had so many cases where a client has come to us, it wasn't the right time. And literally two years later, we work on the exact same project so always keeping the door open even if it's a no and my last one last two would be don't be scared to negotiate especially in the early days and then the final one is always follow up so you might have a meeting you might have pitched to them you might have emailed them after they might have like ghosted you all of our inboxes are busy but just constantly following up even six months later saying hey just wanted to check in if this was still a priority, if this is something you're working on, because you never know what they might be working on and it might just be the right time for you. And I love in, in all these conversations how you see money as something that's really abundant. And I think that, you know, really comes across in, in the book. But I think it's really encouraging, especially for, you know, early stage entrepreneurs where you can, you know, feel really stuck. And at the beginning, of course, you're not going to price yourself at the top of the range. So it's just starting somewhere. Um And maybe on these, you know, early days when you're a solo founder, how can you be hyper efficient? Uh, I know that's something I do at Vespot. I'm, I'm just juggling with, you know, family, the business, a super small team um, and working on this really big project. Um, so I'd love to know how you how you do that. Yeah, so I think um, so. For like a dummy's guide, I would definitely use the urgent, not urgent matrix, mm -hmm. um, which is in the book or you can Google it. And essentially it is four sections and it helps you prioritize because sometimes when you're a small company, when you're starting out, everything can feel urgent. Right. And so you're constantly working on what is admin but you're not really pushing the business forward. So the matrix basically helps you cut your work into urgent and important. So these are things that you need to do now. These are projects with tight schedules. Then you have not in urgent, but important. So these are the things that really build your business. So like building relationships, preparation, strategy, planning, thinking about what are the big things that we need to be preparing for from now. And that's the stuff that people often don't have a lot of time for in, in the early days, right? Because you're just like firefighting all the time. And then you have urgent and not important. So these are very much like interruptions. They're very low value, but someone has to basically get them done. And those are things you want to delegate. Someone else should be doing it or you want to make sure you're not spending all of your time doing that because in the early days, it might be hard for you to find someone else. And then the last one is not urgent and not important. So these are things that waste your time, they're unproductive meetings. You know, in the early days, you might just say yes to everything. But then as you go forward, being like, actually, say no to most of the things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you start understanding the value of your time, right? And I think there are two things that I found are correlated to very efficient, productive people. One is they live by their calendar. So whether that's calendar blocking and saying, okay, every Wednesday, I don't take meetings. It's just the time to do that. 
not urgent but important work and then like for example for me on Tuesdays is where I do all my team one-to-ones and I like talk to them whoever are in like senior um, positions on Thursdays is where I do all my client meetings on Wednesdays is normally where I'm doing like the stuff that it takes me a bit more brain space um so there's a correlation between using their calendar very efficiently and there's a correlation between inbox management you will find that some of the people that you think are the most busy are always the quickest to respond to their emails right and because they're just on top of their inbox. And especially for a job like mine, in terms of a lot of my work is around partnerships, a lot of my work is in my inbox. Inbox management is key because before you know it, you're letting opportunities slip through this through the cracks. You're not following up. That affects your sales cycle and things like that. And in terms of managing your inbox, if you're someone listening to this and you're like, oh my God, my inbox is a mess. Um, <laughs> you can always start again. It's like the one touch rule. So whenever you see an email, there are one of three things you can do. So either archive it because you don't need it, but it's something that you just need to have in your inbox you can search for it later so it's like an information message respond to it like then that's if it doesn't require to do anything to respond so for example say you email me and say hey Nafisa would love to have you on your podcast yep would love to let me know more details right I've sorted it don't think about I'll do it later and then the third is an email that requires you to do something so what I would do is I would open it read it then turn it into unread so make sure that it's unread in my inbox And then add a to-do list task on my to-do list manager to say, I need to do, for example, it might be a proposal, whatever it is, to reply to that email. And then every, every like once a month, I have like a big spring clean of like thinking, is there stuff in here that just needs to be deleted, just needs to go. But I think for, if your inbox is really important for your day-to-day job, being on top of it is paramount to your efficiency. Thank you so much, Navisa. And I'd love to just, I mean close our conversation with one final question around maybe that was, I think, fascinating is like money and morals. And how do you build your business um, taking money that's going to be mostly in line with your values? Um, Is it, I mean, how important is it for you? Is it your community? Because of course, when you build a business, Uh, And, you know, if you're authentic for me, it's like always protecting the communities, like the interest of the community first. So there's some partnerships I'm not going to do, you know, so how how do you approach this this question of good money versus bad money? Yeah, I think what I've realized over the years is so I have a chapter called Integrity Doesn't Pay the Bills. And what I've realized is I see money as all of it sits on a spectrum. And if you think about your own business moral compass of where it sits, right? And so at one end, you have money that is in total alignment with the work that you do. So for example, with us, our core community is Muslim Mm -hmm. women. So we have at one end, organizations that are doing stuff for Muslim women, organizations that are Muslim women run, incredible organizations that are already investing into this community, right? They're like the ultimate, right? They're like the golden at one end. And then at the other end, you have money, which is in direct opposition to the interests of your audience. And so that's like the black and white spectrum. What I found is majority of the money sits in the middle, right? It's like 
the majority of the money, like especially when we're thinking about brands, they're not at one end where they're activists investing into the Muslim community. And they're not at the other end where they're just like pure evil, right? Um, And so for you as a company, it's thinking about where are you comfortable in that spectrum? And if you are going more towards the right, what is your reasoning for that? So for example, you might have a company with a bit of a murky history, but the specific project that they want to work with you on or the specific person in the company You trust their intentions, you know they're an ally, you know they're trying to create a change because the thing is with big companies, they often have lots of these small change makers in different roles in different departments. And so I think it's a case of like being very honest with yourself of where that money sits, being honest with yourself in, you know, some money is not life-changing money, it's just money that pays the bills, right? It doesn't actually do anything bigger than that. And I think the, the Biggest thing is surrounding yourself with people that will keep you accountable. So I have like a group of people that I always check myself and think if I would be embarrassed to tell them that we're working with this company, we probably shouldn't be working with them. That's a really good rule. Thank you so much, Nafisa. Thank you so much for listening to the episode of The Wallet. Please share this show with your friends and subscribe on your favorite platform. You can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It only takes a few seconds, but it helps more people find our show. Join us again next Thursday for another episode of The Wallet. I will be interviewing Jean Roche, Fund Manager, UK European Small and Mid-Cap Equities at Schroeder's UK Mid-Cap Funds PLC. I'm really happy to welcome a female Fund Manager on the podcast. <laughs>